Welcome to the Village Church Podcast. Thanks for stopping by and taking the time to listen. We've prayed that this podcast channel blesses and encourages the Village family. So lean in with an open heart, eager to grow, and enjoy the episode. Morning, church. We're talking at the moment about spiritual disciplines. Disciplines aren't always nice, and being obedient isn't always nice. That's why we talk about it. A little bit about me. Um, I'm an all-in kind of guy. I'm either all-in or not. My wife has suffered because of that. (laughs) She's put up with, oh, I kind of like barbecue. I mean, not like Kiwi barbecues, like smoking and Texan-style pit barbecues. And, you know, that's that's interesting. I'll get into that. So I built a 400-kilo offset smoker (laughs) that could cater for about 100 people. (laughs) It was fun. I sold it last year. I go through phases, you see. I thought doing some ministry as a family, that'd be a good idea. So we went and lived in the jungle in Papua New Guinea for six months. And I mean jungle, like there were a generator that I had to keep going so that we had four hours of power a day. No cell phone reception, no roads. Yeah, properly in the jungle. I thought, I'd really like to study my faith a little bit more. And most people who did that would go, oh, well, do you find a devotional plan? Or maybe I'll do a couple of papers through laid law or something like that. So I just started studying and didn't stop until there was no more that I could do. I just kept going. I'm an all-in kind of guy. The same is true when it comes to how I read the Bible. I tend to be an all-in kind of guy or a not at all. And there's strengths and weaknesses to that. And we discussed that a little bit today. But it's really interesting to me and a little bit ironic that the talk that I'm doing today is a topical talk. I don't like topical talks. I like in-depth talks. Let me exegete a passage and I'll tell you what it really means. I'll spend days and days and days working out what this Greek phrase means and understanding the historical context and then we'll get something good out of it. But no, we're going to talk about why it's important to read the Bible. It's a good talk. It's just not my natural bent. And now you know a little bit about me. So week three of spiritual disciplines, reading the word of God. Where are we going to go today? This is kind of the, tra- the trajectory. We'll spend a little bit of time. Sorry, that was my, let's, there we go. We'll spend a little bit of time doing a bit of a recap on spiritual disciplines as a whole. I think that's important. One of the things that I really like about a preaching series where you get to hear different voices is that each of us will see different, each of the, the preachers will, will have little aha moments about the topic. And so I want to just recap quickly those aha things and then bring a couple of my own. Um, We're going to see what the Bible says about itself. Then we'll talk about how to use it and discuss briefly at the end the discipline aspect of it, which is really fun. We all love disciplines. So by the end of it, I hope that you will go away motivated to not just read the Word of God, but do whatever it takes for you to get it into your heart. Because that's the objective, getting the Word of God into our hearts. All right, so in the first week... Mark spoke about confession and repentance. And there were a couple of things that he highlighted that I really liked. First of all, he talked about this tension between a discipline and the feeling that maybe it's like works versus grace. Now, those are theological terms, right? Works and grace. If you if haven't grown up in a Christian environment or haven't studied much around kind of theology, you're going to be going, what the heck are you talking about? I know what grace is. Sometimes you do that before you eat food. Um, and there's, I know some girls who are called Grace. Is that what you're talking about? So 
We know that we are saved by God's grace for us through our faith in him. That's what we're saved by. We're not saved by doing stuff. But now we're talking about spiritual disciplines and we're talking a whole lot about doing stuff. Well, which way is it, Pete? You can't have it both ways. You are saved by, by grace you are saved, by faith that no man may, may boast. It's almost like we're backdooring it, right? You don't have to do anything, guys. God's done it. His victory was won on the cross. He loves you. All you need to do is accept him and put your faith and trust in him. All true. Then backdoor, by the way, you have to do this stuff too. That's an awkward tension. The, the challenge is that the... The works themselves do not grant us salvation, but they are necessary. It is the inevitable outworking of a grateful heart. Inevitable. But it's motivated by our grateful heart, by the love that we have for God. And so Liam unpacked that a little bit more. He talked about the fact that they are a means, not an ends. So it's a practice, it's not, a, it's not an outcome in its own right. 1 Timothy 4 verse 7, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And he, he shared or reminded us that this was the era of the Pharisees. They thought that the disciplines were the godliness in their own right, not that they led to godliness. Remember Jesus at the temple with his disciples, just people watching as you do. I went to meat stock yesterday, as you might have guessed, barbecue. People watching there was really fun. It's all sorts. So Jesus and his disciples were, were, were people watching at the temple. And this Pharisee comes in and he goes, God, thank you that I'm awesome. Thank you that I'm really holy, that I do all this really good stuff. Reading the Bible, man, I do that all the time. I'm amazing. Fasting, don't worry about it. Prayer, look at me. Thank you that I'm great. Not like that guy. And that guy was a tax collector who was going, God, I'm a sinner. Save me. And Jesus turns to his disciples and goes, hey, guys, check out those two. One of them's going away justified. That humility stuff. They thought that the action, the discipline, the practices they put in place were the things that made them godly, not the things that made them um, more, I guess, more sanctified, more like God. They weren't salvific in their own right. They didn't do the saving. They were the necessary and inevitable response of a grateful heart. Disciplines by definition aren't designed to be nice or fun. Otherwise, we'd call them fun things or that cool stuff. We call them disciplines because they're hard. We know that it's good for us, but we don't really love doing it. And despite the fact that the culture that we're living in increasingly is saying, you know, you do you, you know, do, do what feels good for you. Like, that's the opposite of discipline, right? It's like, don't worry about discipline. That's what it's saying. All of us still know that discipline's important. That's why the diet industry is worth about $200 billion each year. Because we all understand the importance of it, but it's really hard to do. Mark provided this framework that I thought was super helpful. And it was this discipline, desire, and delight. I think it's a, a helpful kind of foundational way of thinking about spiritual disciplines. Now, I need to preface this next little analogy by, by saying this. I really love my wife. <laughs> We've just celebrated our 20th wedding anniversary. And I still think she's amazing. But... 
Anybody who's been in a, in a relationship for some time knows that the excitement, the feelings, the, the I feel in love, I'm just not in love with you. That, I mean, that, that, that I love you, I just don't feel in love with you anymore. It's crap, right? Because love is a decision. So, we all know that these feelings come and go. There's cycles. But what I've discovered for myself is when I, when I recognize that I'm not feeling the feels, and I want to be feeling the feels because that's nice. It's better to actually like, be passionate about the person that you're married to, not just willfully decide to love them. I love you. <laughs> I know that if I... Pause and take time intentionally to ask the question of myself, what can I do to show Jessica that I love her? What will she really appreciate right now? And then do it. In the process of that discipline of pausing and considering and acting, the feelings come back. She hasn't done anything. It's been all me in my head and in my heart. And I think it's exactly the same when we put spiritual disciplines in place. That discipline leads to desire and leads to delight. So I think that's a super helpful way of of approaching this. Spiritual disciplines are an investment in something that we value. And what we invest in, we do value. So here's two little additional thoughts that I had. So that's the, that's the mark. Oh, here's what I've noticed. And the Liam, here's what I've noticed. This is what I noticed. Spiritual disciplines. That sounds like an oxymoron. Let's see if we can get that one up there. An oxymoron. Two words that are contradictory used together. Spiritual disciplines. It sounds kind of Gnostic. It's the separation of the body and the spirit. There's a bunch of famous... Christian groups over the centuries that have been pretty staunch on spiritual disciplines. You may have seen movies from the Middle Ages where they'll have monks walking past whacking themselves on the back, flagellating themselves. And that was a sign of penitence that they, that they were really sorry for the stuff that they'd confessed, and this was like the punishment of themselves. Really what they were doing is trying to avoid getting sick with the plague and dying by manipulating God, many of them. But that's not the point. The point is they're physically doing something. The Christian ascetics, they did some weird stuff. Eating rocks and stuff. I don't know what they were thinking. They'd sit on top of poles with their legs crossed for hours and pray. The point is not that any of those things are particularly good. (laughs) Quite the opposite, probably. But they're physical acts that are supposed to, in some mysterious way, bring about a spiritual benefit. Romans 12 verse 1 says, Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. It's worship. So these spiritual disciplines are physical acts with internal benefits that are acts of worship. John 14 verse 15, If you love me, you'll keep my commands. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. So the challenge, I think, in this talk, where we are going to be getting very soon to the spiritual discipline of reading the Bible, is where's Jesus in that? We're talking about something kind of um, a bit sterile. It's like, oh, we need to do this and this and this. It's all predicated by God's love of us and our responding love of him. 
And out of that comes the discipline. It's fundamentally all about Jesus who encapsulates the love of God to us. And that's the bit that I I think if we're not careful, we lose. If we're not careful, it becomes about reading a Bible. And it's not about reading a Bible. It's bigger than that. So spiritual acts help to align our hearts with God, and they are also evidence of what's happening in our hearts. So the, the second thought I had was this. A talk around spiritual disciplines, particularly when it comes to prayer or reading the Bible, is that guilt is often a motivator. It's really easy to have a whole bunch of shoulds. And it's also particularly easy to hear a talk like this given from the front and think to yourself, cool, you've given me all these ideas about what you think I should do and I should do it at this time and what about a Sabbath time? When do you rest? And all that sort of stuff. And in the back of your head you're going, dude, you're in full-time Christian ministry. You don't even have a real job. What do you know? (laughs) Now, I don't work for the church, but I do work for a Christian organization and it is kind of my job in places. And so to an extent, I can consider some of these spiritual disciplines part of my job, which should make it easier for me, which means that I should carry more guilt than you when I stuff it up, which happens pretty regularly. (laughs) It's hard. It requires intentional discipline. An example of how hard it is, I made a commitment at the beginning of this year to ensure that I would spend time with God intentionally, like dedicated, not just the regular stuff, half a day every month. I'm only two months in. And for me, where I connect with God most easily, beyond intentional study stuff, is at the beach with a surfboard under my legs. Oh, that sounds like a good excuse, Pete. You're going surfing and you're calling it connecting with God. Yes. Do you know why? Because that's where I connect with God. And I haven't done that yet. We're nearly at the end of February. I made a plan to do it tomorrow, and then I realized, oh, that's my son's birthday. Ah, there's always an excuse. There's always a reason. It's not easy. So I'm failing. I want you to feel not like we've got a whole bunch of shoulds. I want you to feel like... um, like you're excited to do this, not guilty because you don't. If I'm selling a gym membership, I'm not going to say, you're a lazy slob, want to buy a gym membership? I'm going to say, do you want to look like this guy? Do you want to feel fit and strong, like you've got energy and you're in your early 20s again? Buy a gym membership. And I also think that conscience has quite a strong role to play in all of this. Each person should determine in their own hearts what God is asking them to do, and then do it. A caveat on that, if you think that your conscience isn't asking you to do anything, your conscience needs to be retuned. Yep, we're not called to do nothing. Okay, now let's get into the actual discipline of reading the Bible. eh? We could have discussed a whole bunch of things when it comes to reading the Bible. And in fact, I was sitting there writing notes going, oh, what about this? Make sure you say this or think about this. I can't do it all. There's no way. We could talk about why the scriptures are trustworthy, and they are, from the the historical correlation, the historicity of scriptures, to the, the document preservation. Anybody who says your Bible isn't trustworthy because it's been translated multiple times doesn't know what they're talking about. The preservation of that document is second to none. Homer's Iliad is the next best well-preserved one, and it's got nothing on the scriptures. 
It's internal consistency. We could talk about eyewitness accounts from credible witnesses. There's lots of stuff we could talk about to demonstrate the trustworthiness of the scriptures. But we can't do that. We don't have time to do it. Historically, the challenge for Christians has not been, should we read the Bible? That hasn't been the question that they've asked. Or listen to the Bible in the, you know, before most of the population were literate. Or should we stand here contemplating the stained glass windows which tell out biblical stories for those who can't read so they can still contemplate the things of God? The should we or shouldn't we has not been the challenge. The challenge is, is how do we? How should we read it? How do we interpret it? And we don't have time to go through that either. (laughs) I've taught uh, a paper on hermeneutics a few times, and it's about 20 hours-ish of contact time, and then study beyond that. And so if that's something that that we need to do as a church to provide something like that, then we could probably have a chat about it. But if it's just, if you're interested, the... Uh, biblical interpretation paper through Laidlaw is fantastic, but we don't have time to do that. So instead, I thought that we should start with, what does the Bible say about itself? Now, I understand the jump in logic there, right? I've just said the biggest contention is, how do you interpret it? Now, let's not worry about that question, and let's just read it. (laughs) That doesn't make sense. You haven't followed the logical steps. But it is trustworthy. And you can do the work to determine that if you want to. I've done the work. We're going to have to move on because I don't have time to do all of that. So I thought we could start this part by by asking this question. Trashy magazines often have those quizzes in them. And you go through the quizzes and you go, I'm like this and I'm like this. And then you tally up your results and at the end it tells you some silly category that you fit into and now you know all about yourself totally useful for life. But I thought maybe we could just highlight a a few different approaches to reading the scriptures. Are you possibly a lucky finger Bible reader? The Harry Potter approach. (laughs) Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Maybe you're the the cover to... I got to Chronicles, but it got a bit boring there, kind of reader. Like, you know that there's some Proverbs that are amazing at some point. Maybe there's some, there's some um, prophets and stuff that you're supposed to read, but you haven't quite got there because you always get stuck in the first few books. Maybe you're a classic hits reader. You've got the Psalms, of course. <laughs> the Psalms. You've got a Gospel. You've got Romans. Romans is important. You should have, the, have Romans in there. If you're a classic hits reader and you don't have Romans change the classic hits and then you've got maybe an epistle or two as far as you're concerned the Bible has five books and they're amazing (laughs) maybe you're a devotional dweller you read the Bible with discipline every day but you've never decided what you're going to read for yourself or maybe you're a word warrior like half the ink is worn off in the pages and the, and the words that are still there are covered up from your notes in it. But it doesn't matter because you've got it memorized anyway. Wouldn't that be awesome? <laughs> That'd be incredible. Depending on what kind of Bible reader you are, uh, you may or may not have a good understanding of the Bible as a whole. The meta-narrative, the big picture story, and how it all fits together. I didn't know how it fit together for ages. It wasn't until after I'd done my master's, before I did my PhD, I taught a paper on an Old Testament survey. I'd never done an Old Testament survey paper, and now I was lecturing it. So I had to make sure I was keeping ahead of the students. 
And it was fantastic. I learned more in that semester about the Bible than I had at any point previously. And I suspect if I grew up in church and studied the stuff that, and I didn't know it, probably a bunch of you don't know it either. So let's, I think this is useful. This is a useful use of time. Briefly, look at the slide. Here's the outline of how it all works, okay? Top left, the law. That's historical narrative and then the teaching of the law that God gave to Moses. So Genesis, that's where most of the stories that you know from the, from the Old Testament are in that one book in Genesis, most of them. There's a few elsewhere. Then, and it's known as the Pentateuch sometimes. The next bit down is history. That, that is like a chronological aspect of the, the, um, the, the nation of Israel. But at the end of Esther, if you wanted to read this thing chronologically, you'd have to go up to the Gospels. You'd go to the New Testament. All of the rest of it fits in in different spots in those first two, or mostly in the history bit. So under that, we've got wisdom literature, which is poetry. And because it's poetry, you have to read it like poetry. They use literary devices and allegory, and you can't just read it and go, God promised this, because it wasn't a promise. It was wise sayings, or it was somebody saying the overflowing emotions of their heart. When you're speaking emotionally, you really hope that people don't take you literally. That's a bad thing, right? And then the prophecies, what God has spoken to the people of Israel during those that time up in the history then we jump up to the top the gospels that is jesus on earth his acts and works and what he taught and it also has parables in it parables is a unique genre in the middle of that that you have to treat differently the acts of the church that's the story of the early church the letters letters and letters so this is mostly paul but also a few other people writing to other believers and saying hey guys you're struggling with this Let me tell you some stuff. Or, man, you're doing amazing here. Let me encourage you. Or you're really going through the ringer at the moment. Let me, like, tell you what God has revealed to me for your benefit. But Romans is a little bit different. Even though it is one of those letters, it's a wee bit different, which is why I highlighted it before. It's like the closest thing that we have to a complete systematic theology in one book. It's Paul saying, let me explain to you, Gentiles, non-Jews, us, let me explain to you this gospel thing. It's pretty cool. And then Revelation at the very end is super tricky to exegete. It's challenging, challenging, challenging. And you can either be one of those people who love it and spend all your time in it, or one of those people who go, there's a tough bit at the end, let's not read that one. And I tend toward the second of those two. (laughs) I think that's helpful. Just understanding that, because otherwise you think, well, you read from the beginning to the end, and it's some sort of historical journey, and it's just not the way it works. All right. But all of that is one cohesive story of God's love for us. And that's the bit we need to not forget. This is God's love for us. So what does the Bible say about itself? Firstly, it's inspired by God. Theology students will hear the word, hear the phrase, probably on day one, God's word, human words. Inspired by God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, but written by people in a particular place and time and historical context. So it's going to be colored by that. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Equipped, equipped. Practical application. We'll come to that soon. 
There's a lot of verses that talk about the trustworthiness of Scripture. And again, that's a little bit, you're putting the cart before the horse here, Peter, because you're talking about the Bible saying that it is itself trustworthy. It's not super credible. But remember, one of the things I said we can't talk about is why the Bible is trustworthy. <laughs> it just is. Um, the Bible is not just for reading or for hearing. It's for action. It's to be used Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. James 1.22. The Anglican bishop in the 19th century, J.C. Riles, said, Riles, sorry, no S on the end, said, happy is the man who possesses a Bible. Happier still is the one who reads it. Happiest of all is he who not only reads it, but also obeys it. That's good, eh? The Bible is described as the sword of the spirit, the word of God, and the depiction of the armor of God. This is, it's the attacking part of the armor that God, of the spiritual armor that God provides us. And it's to be used. You should train with it, almost like it's a discipline. We could call it a spiritual discipline. Hey, that's a good, we should do a series on spiritual disciplines. That'd be good. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The Bible isn't for reading, it's for acting, it's for doing, it's for responding. And you can't do any of those do's unless you've actually read it. My son Samuel loves swords. He's a wee bit odd. We love him. He loves them so much that he's got an apprenticeship to become a blacksmith. Like a real life blacksmith. Proper, like hitting hot metal with hammers. It's ridiculous. <laughs> he said that ages ago, and we're like, yeah, that's cool, yeah, no, nah, but it, we're, we're, it's 2024, there's no way you're ever going to be able to do that. And he found an apprenticeship. Amazing. But he, he bought swords and things for a while, and like, here, here's one of his swords. He bought this, and it's, it's pretty, and he would look at it and clean it and even sharpen it. It's actually quite sharp. But it's off a real rubbish website. It's not good quality. It's not super functional, but it looks pretty. He would put it on his, on his stand. He would look at it. He would show it to his friends. He would talk about it. Now and then he would go outside and get a bottle, fill it up with water, and chop it in half. With mixed success, he didn't really know what he was doing. But recently, with this whole blacksmithing thing, he's also started connecting with people who are in, into historical reenactments. It's like the most butch men's sewing club you'll ever see. <laughs> Lovely people, not the most mainstream. <laughs> and they use things like this. It's not quite as pretty. It's got marks all over the edges of it. But he said to me the other day, hey dad, did you know that if you can get inside somebody's striking range and get in close to them, then you can control their elbow and that, that's a lever and then they can't, they can't hit you anymore. You have to get in close. How does he know that? Well, he actually went and practiced. He used it. He fought with other people. He challenged somebody else who knew what they were doing and got beaten a few times and started to learn stuff. The same is true when we come to reading the scriptures. We need to actually use it. We can't just leave it on the shelf. We can't just admire it. We can't just tell our friends about 
this amazing Bible. I wonder how long you took choosing the cover of your Bible compared to how long you spend reading it. Oh, I want a really pretty one. It needs to feel good in my hands. Well, it's not going to be relevant if you don't hold it. Now, we, we admire people who are really great at things. We see athletes and go, oh, man, that's incredible. We see whatever it is. See people at art or public speakers or whatever the thing is, and you see people who are amazing, and you go, that's incredible. And what you don't see is the hours and hours and hours and days and days and days of practice that they've put in, in private, in the quiet, where they got no credit, no recognition, all by themselves to get to that point. I really hope that when we listen to Christian speakers, we come away inspired by their knowledge of the Word of God, not by their not, but not by their prowess as public speakers. Psalm 119 has a lot to say about the Bible and how we read it. Psalm 119, verse 9 to 11: How does a young man keep his life pure by living according to your Word? I seek you, Lord, with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I store your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Storing your word in your heart, that's like, that's a memorization thing. It's a getting it in here thing. It implies meditation and contemplation. And and the why statement is given. We're not left just going, oh, we should do this thing. The psalmist says why we do it. That I may not sin against you. That's the motivation, that I may not sin against you. My mum was amazing at making us memorise scriptures. We didn't love it. We were homeschooled, which is why I'm a bit socially awkward. (laughs) And every morning, we would spend a little bit of time either working on the current memory verse or reviewing our previous ones. And so I've got this data bank of memory verses that are inside me, and sometimes I forget that I know them, and then they pop up at the right time. In John 14, Jesus promises that he will send the the Holy Spirit, and he says that the Spirit will teach you and remind you of everything I have said to you. Remind. That means you've heard it at some time previously. When I was going, well, still probably, but mostly through my teenage and young adult years, 1 Corinthians 10.13 would plague me with a little rap rhythm, but not really rap. The only temptations that you have are the temptations that everyone has, but you can trust God. He will not let you be tempted more than you can stand. But when you are tempted, he'll also give you a way to escape that temptation. Then you'll be able to stand it. Oh, you mean I don't have an excuse because there's always a way out? Oh, you mean this is normal? Yes, those things. So many times I knew I was about to make the wrong decision, go to the wrong place, willfully do something that I shouldn't do, and I'd have this prompt in my head that was, now's your chance. And I knew that was the Holy Spirit saying to me, there's always a way to escape it, now's your chance to escape it. And usually, so often, I ignored that and carried on anyway, but it was my fault. Willful choice, willful sin. We use the word of God to fight the devil. After 40 days of fasting, Satan came and tempted Jesus. And first of all, he says to him, hey, you're really hungry. You should turn those stones into bread. And Jesus replies, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the the mouth of God. Then Satan takes him up to the temple and says, hey, throw yourself off. And now he's, now he's tricky. He uses the Bible in return. He wields that sword himself. And he says, 
for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. And Jesus responds, starting to get a little bit short with him now, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. It's like Satan's gone, and Jesus has gone, That'll be good on the podcast. And then again, Satan tempts Jesus by offering him glory if he'll bow down to him. And Jesus replies, you shall worship, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and you shall serve only him. There's this sword fight going on, this parry and thrust from two expert swordsmen. And they can do that because they know it. Do we know it? When he was faced with the wrong path, Jesus was able to see it and fight back against it. So this is one little epiphany that I've had in this process. Most of you will know this verse, Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It shows the right way to go. But just as it shows the right way to go, it equally shows the wrong way. It it helps us to identify the wrong way. The verses around that say this. I gain understanding from your precepts, from your teachings. I gain understanding. Therefore, I hate every wrong path. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I've taken an oath and confirmed it that I will follow your righteous laws. It's about obedience, but it's also about being able to identify the wrong way. To obey it, we first need to know it. There's so much more that I could say um, about the necessity of teaching our children. That's significant. Um, we could talk about the way that the scriptures reveal God. It's not just about you should do this or don't and don't do this. It's also about understanding the nature and character of God. We don't have time to get into that. What I want you to recognize is that meditating on the word of God, reading it and allowing it to penetrate our hearts and committing it to memory isn't actually an option for believers. It's necessary for a righteous life. That's how we know the right way and the wrong way. David did it and wrote about it. Jesus did it and demonstrated it throughout his life. And he calls us to do it as well. All right. Um, You might be tempted to kind of push back against something like that by saying, oh, but it's about the heart. I just want to be in God's presence and soak there. Or words to that effect. That's not a bad thing. But we're talking about spiritual disciplines here. Calvin Miller wrote this. Mystics without study are only spiritual romantics who want relationship without effort. Mystics without study are only spiritual romantics who want relationship without effort. It takes effort. So how do we read it? How do we actually do this thing? Our, spiritual, our, our biblical literacy is in decline and really it's our fault. We're not doing a great job at this. I'm not doing a great job at it. We're soft. We live in a culture that says do what feels good. And we know that that's not always true, but we still tend that way. It requires real, genuine effort. Bishop Steve Lowe, who was the bishop here in Hamilton until, until recently, I was having a chat with him. And he said, you know, Pete, Protestants have lost the blessing of tradition and Catholics have lost the blessing of the scriptures, but we're reclaiming it. And I think that he's right. I'm going to read this, what I've written, just because I think it was, it's fairly succinct. For hundreds of years, Protestants have proclaimed that our, our faith is based on sola scriptura, scripture alone. 
However, without also having church traditions to hold us to God's teachings, if we lose biblical fluency, what's left to hold us on track? We'll be swayed by the winds of culture, and that's exactly what you see when you look around the church in many places. It's imperative if the thing that we're basing our faith on is the scriptures, that we know the scriptures. We don't have redundancy of church tradition, which can delay the impact of wayward theology for a few generations. It's going to be much faster. And so we need to be on this. We can't be letting this pass by the by. And we do that in three ways, I think. We do it through memorization. We do it through deep dive study. And we do it through the daily nibble. And each of those approaches are good, and in an ideal world would do all three, but they all require discipline. For me, like I told you at the beginning, I'm a deep dive kind of person, so I'm really good at that, but I'm terrible at the daily nibble. And if you're good at the daily nibble, that is fantastic. I wish I could be a little bit more like you. One caution I'd say around the daily nibble. It's probably good for sustaining. It's not that great for growing. Like it's a good little let's keep us going, that's why I chose a biscuit. Oh, the good. Satiates me a little bit. But if you really want to get big and strong, that's not where you're going. You're going to something a bit more chunky than that. The deep dive, I love it. You get, but, but it requires discipline. It takes time and there's no shortcuts. Days and days and days sometimes, but at least hours. A deep dive is not 30 minutes. And then memorization hard, hard thing to do, but when it comes to sustaining, my little epiphany this morning was, I've been really rough on my body recently, I haven't been working out or eating as well as I should recently, but for the last 20 years, I've been really disciplined in physical exercise, and so I'm going, man, I, I don't think I'm doing great, but I'm not doing as bad as I could, have, could be. Why? Because even though I've let things slip a little bit in the last few months, I have... 25 years of disciplined minimum three days a week exercise and my body's going to hold up a little bit longer. I can't keep it going forever. I think that's where memorization comes in. I think, and maybe the deep dive stuff as well, but it's like, it's in you. And even though you might go through times of not being so good at some of these other disciplines, you've got something to sustain you for a bit. It's not, it's not the long term thing you should be doing, but you're not going to fall off the rails immediately. So the question is not how do we read it. We've got apps, we've got reading plans, we've got in-person study groups. My Bible here, I bought it up here today, I haven't even used it. I just used it as a prop. Because I pull it off Bible Hub, put it onto my notes, it's easier for me to read. How to read it is not the problem. We're spoilt with choice, it's just doing it. Will we read it? And there's no shortcut to that. You just have to decide to. So my hope and prayer today is that you haven't heard this as condemnation, but rather as motivation. I hope you want a lifetime subscription to the the gym of the Word of God. And my hope is also not primarily that you'll read the Bible more. It's that you will work out for you increasingly how you get the Scriptures into your heart. And to some extent that will be based on your learning styles, knowing yourself, what works for you. And get it in your heart. That's the end goal. Get the word of God into your heart so that it can come out of you. So that it can guide you, not just in the right way to go, but also also in the wrong way that you shouldn't be going. And as you do that, 
As well as being strengthened and better equipped in your faith, I know that the discipline that you put in place will strengthen your desire for the things of God and you will increasingly take delight in him. Let me pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it is inspired by you. Thank you that you graciously gave it to us as a way that you can communicate with us all the time. I pray, Lord, that as we go from this place, we would be excited, encouraged, and motivated to spend time in your word, whatever that looks like, so that it will get into our hearts and transform us. Bless every person here, I pray. And I pray that increasingly, Lord, as we spend time seeking you, that you would transform us into your likeness. In Jesus' name. Amen.